please turn with me to the book of James in the New Testament. We're going to be in James chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, turn there. If you've got a phone or some sort of device, please find it. If you're new here to Redeemer, we'd love for you to bring your Bible. We believe it to be the Word of God. We believe it to be true, and we believe it to be for us. And so we preach and teach from the Bible. We're doing this series. If you were with us last week, my, you remember my wife said, you ought to call this series Convicted Yet? Because James gets up in our grill, verse after verse, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter. Chapter one was joy in the midst of trial. And that's not always easy to live. Chapter two was that we would not welcome others, if you will, with a, an attitude of personal favoritism. We would not judge them or discriminate them based upon how they are perceived by us. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a rich man comes into your assembly wearing fine clothes and gold jewelry, and at the same time a poor man comes in wearing dirty clothes, and you say to the rich man, Hey, man, cool, glad you're here. Sit down in this place. But you say to the poor man, just sit down here at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Ooh, James got up into, into us for how we can sometimes look at the outside and make our decisions as to how we will extend our love. If you were here last week, he talked about the tongue and the words that we speak, and he didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about it. And we were convicted that, uh, boy, this thing inside our mouth can cause so much trouble. But James said, my brethren, it ought not to be this way. We found hope in the gospel. Well, if you haven't been convicted yet, chapter 4 is about worldliness. So if, uh, if you're not affected by the world at all, as you seek to be faithful to Jesus Christ, then you've got no worries this morning. But I think James will do his work with us this morning as well. You'll see the word down there in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The world, a virtual spiritual force, antithesis to the kingdom of God, appears to denote the embodiment of evil. One defined it like this. The world is a system that is headed by Satan that leaves God out. Manifest itself through the institutions of this world, the people of this world. It is opposed to God, opposed to Christ, opposed to the spirit of Christ. It's opposed to biblical values and attitudes and principles and behaviors. Again, it is the antithesis to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the world. Biblical values, attitudes, principles, behaviors. The values, the attitudes, the principles, and the behaviors 
of the world. We live in the world, and it's always speaking to us and calling to us, always looking to influence us in ways that are contrary to the beauty and the glory and the goodness and the greatness of our God and his love for us and his call for us to follow him. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And he said, not only would the world hate him, but it would hate those who follow him. He said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, think what he means if if you were of the world if you shared the attitudes the values the principles the behaviors of the world the world would love its own but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world to share the biblical values and priorities and principles and behaviors i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates Apostle Paul said, the things of God are foolishness to the world. The world despises the things of God and they are of little value to the world. And Paul said of you and me before we became Christians that we walked according to the course of this world. But now that we have become Christians, he says what in Romans 12? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Theologian Millard Erickson, commenting on Paul's thoughts, said, the impression which Paul leaves is that the things of Christ involve a mindset or frame of reference completely different from the world's way of viewing things. We've seen Jesus, we've seen Paul, the Apostle John said, do not love the world or the things in the world. And so it appears from Jesus, from Paul and James, that the world represents an organized force, a power or an order, which as one said, is the, the counterpoise to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and the world. And added to it is that the world is under the power of Satan. The Apostle John said, the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming. Satan has been defeated at the cross. His doom is sure. He always operates under the total sovereignty of the will of God. And yet in some way, scripture indicates he still rules the world. Erickson goes on, it is apparent then. That behind and in a sense over all of the authorities exercising control in the world, there is a far greater power. Satan. And they are merely Satan's agents, perhaps even unwittingly. And you and I live in the midst of it. And therefore, it can be really, really easy to be conformed to it, right? I mean, we live in the world. We live in this system that 
is opposed to God, leaves him out, has its own values and priorities and principles and behaviors and the like. It's the air we breathe. It's the water in which we swim. It's all around us. And we can get sucked into the current and just go with the flow rather than, if you will, swim upstream in devotion and obedience to God. world maybe ask, what do we look like? What do we do? How much do we make? What do we own or appear to own? One, one guy, I forget his name, he wrote a great little book about biblical manhood. He, he took a lot of it from the men's fraternity type curriculum, but he talked about how the world defines manhood. He summed it up in three B words, ball fields, billfolds, and bedrooms. All right, as young men growing up, you know, you're defined by what you do out on the ball field. If you're a great player, if you produce, man, people love you, you're the man. If you happen not to produce on the ball field, you're, you're less than. As we get a little bit older, it's billfold. What do you do and how much do you make, man? Because that's the measure of a man. Is what he makes, what he has, and the like. And it can even become ball fields and billfolds and then bedrooms. What he can accomplish there. That's the world. And he went on to say, no, that's not what manhood is all about. It's and he would use the men's fraternity stuff. It's, it's about a man created in the image of God who rejects passivity and accepts responsibility and leads courageously and expects God's greater reward. And it has nothing to do with how he performs on the ball field. It has nothing to do with how much money he makes. It has nothing to do with any conquering that he might do. It has everything to do with rejecting the passivity that is so much a part of a man. And accepting the responsibility that God has given to him. And leading courageously. And expecting God's great reward. We're so quickly drawn into other things like that. Through the television, through the movies, through the magazines, through this, that, or the other. The attitudes, the values, the behaviors of the world are pressing in upon us and so often contrary to the ways of Christ. That's why Paul would urge us, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. Well, all of that to get to James 4. James is going to take up worldliness. And if I read him right, I think he's going to say that worldliness can damage our relationships to others. It can damage our relationship to God. And therefore, we need to come and experience the grace that God offers to us through a life of continual repentance. Let's watch him. In verses 1 to 3, worldliness damages relationships within the church. Let me just read it and then point out some words. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your 
pleasures or desires that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. There's the words quarrels, conflicts, murder. Boy, it sounds like he's going pretty far there. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. I think probably he has in mind, as he seemingly does throughout the entire book of James, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. You ought to go home and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then read the book of James. James certainly had the Sermon on the Mount in his mind. And you'll remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, even if you get angry, and if you will speak harshly towards others, you've committed murder in your heart. And so we have quarrels, we have conflicts, we have murder, we fight, we quarrel. And the source James points to is the, the worldliness within. What's the source? Is it not your pleasures, your desires that wage war in your members. He uses the word lust, but you do not have. So there's some things that we might desire. We, we want something, and maybe it's something physical, but it can be something not physical as well. We might want power, or we might want recognition, or we might want prestige. We want, might want people to notice us. We want people to like us. We want, but those desires are frustrated. We, we don't get what we want out there or even from others. And it's worse than that because he says, you are envious and cannot obtain. So it's not only that you want something and can't get it, but somebody else may already have it. And so you begin to get envious of them. What you want, somebody else has. And if we don't watch our heart, that can begin to create in things like envy, jealousy. And it shows up in the way that we might treat others. Somebody looks the way you want to look, or they might have what you want to have. Or they might have a position that you desire, or the recognition that you want. You want it, you don't have it, they do. And Maybe you don't square off with them face to face, but it can lead maybe towards bitterness. It can lead toward gossip and things like that. It, it continues. It can create friction between brothers and sisters in the Lord. James, we didn't see it. We didn't look at it. But in the paragraph before, he's talking about true wisdom and understanding. Verse 13 of chapter 3, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, so lie against the truth. 
This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. The wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. Well, that sounds different than quarrels and conflicts and murder and fights, doesn't it? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. I read one guy this week. I've never heard this. It's good. The purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth. Maybe if worldliness has had its way with us, we have these desires, these wants, and I want to get my will done. What does he say? To get man's will done in heaven. And so my prayers become, God, I want, I want, I want. I have these desires, and I want you to make them so, rather than, God, what do you want? What is your will that it might be done on earth? Are your prayers, are mine, spiritually robust in nature? Are your prayers and mine consumed with knowing God, with loving others, with pursuing holiness? with living a life of service, being generous with the things that we have, with sharing the gospel, multiplying disciples? Or are our prayers marked more by gimme, gimme, gimme? Help me, help me, help me. Well, he goes on, not only can our desires and our pleasures damage our relationship with the others as we desire and don't have, but they have, and mm, worldliness damages our relationship with God as well. Verse 4, you adulteresses, James is playing on that Old Testament history, right, of God wedding himself to his people. They are his bride, and he loves them, and he cares for them, and he has devoted himself to them. And then Israel of old time and time and time again would turn away from the great God who had so committed himself to them and turn aside to idols. And the prophets would call upon Israel to repent from such spiritual adultery. And James picks up on it. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Powerful language, right? We said we have the kingdom of God here and we have the world here. And he, he seemingly draws a sharp dichotomy between the two. He says, Mitch, if you're going to be a friend of the world, you're at hostility towards God. 
you want to be a friend of the world, you're setting yourself up as an enemy of God. He's going to call this, I think, down there in verse 8, double-mindedness. Right? On the one hand, I love God. He has saved me from my sins. He has devoted himself to me forevermore. Nothing's going to separate me from his love ever. He's given me the promises of eternal life. I want to love him. I want to trust him. I want to follow him. But my heart can so wander to the things of the world. I can be so double minded on the one hand pledging my allegiance to God and to his son the Lord Jesus Christ and on the other hand seemingly pledging my allegiance to the world and James is saying he didn't say it like this but we could quote him from last week my brethren it ought not be this way we ought not be so double minded as to be a, have allegiance to Christ and allegiance to the world Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Now, here's probably in all of the book of James, the most difficult phrase to translate. The Greek is difficult to translate. The New American Standard reads, He, meaning God, jealously desires the spirit, and the New American Standard has spirit capitalized, so they're, they're interpreting it as referring to the Holy Spirit. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Others translate it much the same, but they understand spirit to be lowercase. God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. The idea being this, coming out of that language of adultery, that God is our heavenly husband and we are his bride and he is jealous for our devotion. The spirit which he, right, he, he, he made man from the dust of the ground and, and blew into him the breath of life, the spirit. God jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He jealously desires you and me to be devoted to him and to him alone. Just as a husband would his wife. Wants her full devotion to him and not to anyone else. Just as a wife would for her husband. Wants him to be fully devoted to her and to no one else. God jealously desires you and me. One's in which he put our spirit. Other translations think it might be a little bit different. The older NIV put it like this. The spirit he caused to live in us tends towards envy. And so I know we're getting in the weeds here, but in the one case, God is the subject. And he, God, jealously desires us to be devoted to him. Others interpret it, translate it, with the spirit is the subject. 
the spirit that God caused to live in us tends towards envy. The Net Bible translates it much the same way. The spirit that God caused to live in us has an envious yearning. I think both have good um, arguments that it could be one way or the other, and so we're not going to come down on it. But let's just briefly note it. If it is he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, he wants our devotion. You adulteresses, if you're going to be friends of the world, you know you're hostility to God. If you're friends of the world, enemy of God. God desperately longs, he yearns that his people, whom he loves, would, would be devoted to him and to him alone. One put it like this, it explains the seriousness of any flirtation with the world by bringing to mind the jealousy of the Lord, which demands a total, unreserved, unwavering allegiance from the people with whom he has joined himself. Oh, that's what God longs for, if we translate it that way. If it's the other way, he's just reiterating what he is saying about our desires and our pleasures that we, in the whole testimony of Scripture, that though we are created in the image of God and it was very good, we then fell into sin and we are broken now. And we yearn, we long for the wrong sorts of things. Our sinful desires that we may spin them on our own pleasures. We have this tendency not to be so devoted to God, but to be devoted to the world. The spirit that God caused to live in us has an envious yearning. Well, verse 6 there's hope. He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you ever found yourself, yes, devoted to Christ, but also finding yourself yearning for the things of the world? We do that, we make ourselves an enemy of God. We're at hostility with God that we would, the one who has loved us and the one who has saved us and the one who is so committed to us forevermore and the one who's going to take us home to be with him forever. And here we are longing for and yearning for the things of the world. And our attitudes look like the world and our thoughts look like the world and our behaviors look like the world. You ever been there? I know I have. And God longs for me to be fully devoted to him. But oh man, I find myself so not. But there's hope. He gives a greater grace. God is here for us in the midst of this struggle. In the midst of this tension. In the midst of when we find ourselves double-mindedness between God and the world, God is here, and he's here to help us. He's available to his children to help us in the midst of this struggle. We don't deserve it. 
It's grace. But his power is available to us because of Jesus. And how might it look? I think verse 7 down through 10 shows us. Maybe the key word is humble. We find it in verse 6 and in verse 10. So at the beginning of this and at the end of this. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And so maybe everything that James is about to say between verse 6 and verse 10 is what does it look like for you and me to humble ourselves before God in the midst of this struggle between devotion to him and our tendency to pursue the things of the world. Verse 7. Here's maybe what it looks like. Submit, therefore, to God. I'm going to give you a handful of our words. You can write them down if you would like. I think the first step is that you and I recognize the worldliness within our own heart and call it what it is, sin. I don't have any text jumping off at this, but I think it is assumed. That when we see worldliness in our heart, we call it what it is. And that leads to humility. We don't sweep it under the rug. We don't try to make it less than it is. We call it what it is. It's worldliness. It's sin. And when we do that, the blinders are taken away. We're not hiding anymore. We see it for what it is. We're no longer proud because we see the ugliness of our devotion to the world. So maybe the first step is, yep, that's me. I've pledged my allegiance to Jesus, but my heart is too far in line with the world. So we recognize the worldliness within our own hearts. Secondly, we renounce Satan's offer of worldly stuff. Remember, the world system is headed by Satan, and so he will continually be after you and me. And how he comes after you is going to be different from how he comes after me. And how he comes after you is going to be different than how he goes after the person sitting next to you. But James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James, along with Paul and John and Jesus, believes that there is an adversary, the devil, along with Peter as well, and he is after us, right? Peter said it. Maybe most clearly, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul said, your struggle in mine is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Stand firm, therefore. So we resist. We don't go looking for a fight with him. He'll bring it to us. He's on the attack. But maybe we resist with the truth that we know from Scripture. And so we recognize the worldliness and then we resist it with truth. Third, we've got to move fast. We run hard after God. So resist the devil. And, and again, maybe the, with the truth, keep going, but I, 
Remember Jesus, when the devil was after him, what does he do? He responds with scripture three times over. Paul in Ephesians 6, when he's talking about spiritual warfare, we have one offensive weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, Paul said, which is the word of God. And so we want to have the biblical truth on hand to remind us of God's ways. And then we run hard after God, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Homer Kent said it like this, it's, it was not an evangelistic call, but an appeal to believers who had been contaminated in some way by worldliness to return and give their full allegiance to God. When they do, they will find that God is always willing to meet them. So what do you do when you find that worldliness within you? You recognize it, you resist it with God's truth, and then you run to God. You pray to him, you confess your sins you draw near to God by talking to him, confessing your sins, thanking him for forgiveness through Jesus, pleading with him for help. He will draw near to you. He gives a greater grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I think, does not God love it when you and me Seek to turn away from our sins, from our worldliness, and turn to him in confession and prayer and help. Does God not love that? When his children draw near to him, will he not draw near to them? And then maybe number four, resolve not to go the way of the world, but seek the way of the Lord. And so it's not merely that we go to God and talk to him and confess our sins and ask for his help, but... He goes on, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Dang, it's strong language. But I think he's just calling us to repentance, not merely, and we'll talk about that, to regret what we have done and not merely to acknowledge what we have done, but to then resolve, Lord Jesus, with your help, I don't want to go there again. So the hands are the outward activities of sin. When we are sucked in by the world, our hearts are the inward thoughts and attitudes when we're sucked in by the world. And James says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. Number five, regret how fickle your heart can be between God and the world. I get that word fickle from his James word, double-minded changing frequently, especially as regards one's loyalties, interests, or affections. That's what fickle means. We're loyal to God and we're loyal to the world. We're interested in God and his ways and his glory, and then we're interested in the world. Our affections are for him, and then our affections are for the world. We love God. We're devoted to Christ, but worldliness I use that word regret. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Strong words. But maybe we could just say that James is serious about repentance. Repentance. 
One of the true, one of the marks of true repentance is godly sorrow. We learn that from 2 Corinthians. That we don't just tip our hat to God in the confession of our sins, but we and we're not merely sorry for the ways that the worldliness in our life, the sin in our life might affect us, but that there's a sense in which our worldliness and our sin Paul would call it, would quench the spirit of God. And so we are miserable. We mourn. We weep. Laughter to mourning. Joy to gloom. It's expressing our sorrow to him for the fickleness of our hearts. But then finally, number six, almost time to go. Remember that God gives grace to the one who does this. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Again, Homer Kent, this summarizing statement concludes the author's discussion of submission to God. He has shown that it involves resisting the efforts of the devil, drawing near to God in faith and worship, forsaking sinful deeds and thoughts and acknowledging sinfulness with serious reflection and appropriate grief. All of this can be summed up in the command, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Yes, verses one to five, one of these convicting texts again. Oh, worldliness. Oh, me. But it's also filled with hope. God gives a greater grace to you and me in the midst of our fight against worldliness and sin. God gives a greater grace. If we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we are forgiven past, present, and future of all of our sins and all of our worldliness. It's wiped clean. And as you and I struggle with sin and worldliness, it cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are safe and secure in him. We are loved by him. We are accepted by him 100%. That's justification, right? It's the beginning of the Christian life when we turn to faith in Jesus and God declares us to be righteous imputes the righteousness of Jesus to us, adopts us into his family as his child. And then we begin this thing called the Christian life. And while our sin, the penalty of our sin has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross, the presence of sin still remains. And so we're going to live this life of uh, uh, fighting against worldliness. But God is here to help us. He's here. He's available. Christ who died and rose, ascended to the right hand of God, and he's there right now. Alive. To represent us before the Father, to intercede for us, to pray for us, and to give us grace upon grace upon grace for every moment of our Christian life as we look to him.
praise God. He gives a greater grace. I've told this story before, and I need it right now. When I was in seminary in my preaching classes, and I would preach, and y'all, I was pretty good. I won the preaching award at Dallas Seminary. But my preaching prof looked at me and said, Mitch, do you ever smile? Not much, right? I need to be smiling at verse 6 right here, y'all. And so do you and I. You and I are going to struggle with worldliness unless you're just sinless. And that worldliness in the strong language of James puts us in hostility to, with God, enemy of God. Good night, James. Hey, Mitch, I'm just setting it up, man. You can't talk about devotion to Jesus and yet also be playing around with the world over here. God longs for you to be fully devoted to him. Yeah, but James, I, 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 hey man, I know, I get it, I'm with you. But God gives a greater grace to you and me. So come to him with it. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Turn from your sins. Mourn for them. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. Smile. God is for us. He's not against us. He loves us. He loves us. And he loves when we, his children, come humbly to him to confess our sin, to talk to him about our sin, to express our sorrow over our sins, to ask his help for our sins. He loves it. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I don't know if it was Calvin or Luther or who it was, but they, they basically said, listen, the Christian life is just a life of continual repentance. The point being, from the time we trust in Christ to the time we go home, we're going to be struggling with sin. And so it's a continual life of recognizing it and going to God about it. Humbly to experience the greater grace which he has give us, brush us off, if you will, pat us on the behind as we continue to follow him. Let's pray. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves where worldliness has crept into our souls and where we've devoted ourselves to the things of the world rather than the things of Christ. Help us to see those things when they pop up in our hearts and help us to quickly do business with you. Oh, there is grace to be had from your wonderful hands all the time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I've found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Father, we rejoice that grace, your unmerited favor and goodness towards us is not something that we merely received years ago. 
at the beginning of our Christian life, but it's something we can receive over and over and over and over and over again because you are alive. And you are for us. And as Peter would pray for his readers, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. seems there's more grace to be had to be experienced so help us Lord in this fight help us to be humble people humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you we pray in Jesus name Amen